1: Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours.
2: The government has been tolerated by Iranians, but has never been really popular. But what's different now, I think, is a lot of people have given up hope, uh, partly because of the U.S. sanctions, which have been so crippling, and partly because of the repressive forces in their own government, which they see as being strengthened by U.S. sanctions. I think the Iranians showed uh, what they called strategic patience for a year after the U.S. withdrew. And it was only when uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, said that Iran could not export one drop of its oil that we saw them shift from... Patience to resistance, they would call it. They say that if they can't export oil, then others should not be able to as well. I think what they're trying to show uh, is we can't have our baklava and eat it too. If the U.S. is going to declare economic war on Iran, then U.S. allies in the region will bear the brunt.
0: If President Trump wins re do you think they'll be forced to come to the negotiating table, given how damaging the economic sanctions have been?
2: I think there's some in Iran who would like to do a deal now because they sense that Trump is weak and that he's looking for some sort of uh, big win in terms of foreign policy. So, you know, if the sanctions continue, of course, the issue with sanctions is that the longer you try to maintain maximum pressure, the more they start to fall apart. It was always so controversial, the idea of dealing with the United States, with the great Satan, as the hardliners call the U.S. And then they finally did it and they got this agreement, and now it's being destroyed. So those who said, don't trust the West, you can never trust the West, particularly the United States, they're being
0: vindicated.
2: So this is a big setback, and it's going to take us a long time to recover.
0: Barbara Slavin is the director of the Future of Iran Initiative and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. She is a lecturer in international affairs at George Washington University and a columnist for almonitor.com, a website devoted to news about the Middle East. Barbara is a career journalist, previously serving as assistant managing editor for national security at the Washington Times, senior diplomatic reporter for USA Today, Cairo correspondent for The Economist, and an editor at the New York Times Week in Review. I just had an opportunity to sit down with Barbara to get caught up on all things Iran. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Barbara, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show, and it's great to see you. Thank you. Pleasure. There's so much domestic news that's dominating the headlines that very important foreign policy issues are being squeezed out. So given that, over the last several weeks, we've done episodes on China and North Korea just to try to keep up with what's happening on key national security issues, which don't go away, as you know, simply because we're all focused on impeachment. So we've done China and North Korea, and we thought we needed to do the same on Iran. So thank you for coming on the show to help us do that. Okay. But before we talk about Iran itself, I'd love to hear how you got interested in the Middle East mm-hmm. and how you got interested in Iran in particular.
2: Okay, well, um, I was a journalist uh, starting in the 1970s, and I think one of my early stories as a young Reporter for UPI, I got sent to the United Nations on a Sunday to ask Henry Kissinger about the disengagement agreement between Israel and Syria. Hmm. So that's probably the first time I actually wrote about anything to do with the Middle East. Uh, but I subsequently went to work for the New York Times. I worked on the Weekend Review se- uh, section; it was then called. And we had to do, I loved
0: that section, by yeah, the way. Yeah, we
2: used to do summaries of, of world news. There was a whole column called The World, and right. I was half of the world for six years. And for some reason, my partner, I don't know, he was more interested in Europe, so I got all the Middle East summaries to write, including when Sadat went to Jerusalem. Uh, when the uh, Iranian Revolution started in 1978, I was the one who was doing a summary almost every week. And then the hostage crisis as well, so I think that was my first introduction to Iran. Subsequently, uh, my husband and I moved to Cairo, where I was the uh, uh, correspondent for The Economist, based in Cairo, but traveling to Libya, Iraq, uh, pretty much every place but Iran. Mm. Um, so uh, the four years in Cairo was my real my real education real in, in yeah. the Middle East, yeah yeah
0: so your program at the Atlantic Council. It's called the Future of Iran Initiative. What is that and what are you trying to do?
2: Well, we we sort of changed the name. We had a bipartisan task force on Iran at the Atlantic Council that I managed uh, that worked very, very heavily on the nuclear issues. So put out policy recommendations in 2013, uh, some of which were adopted by the Obama administration, not all of them, And then during the negotiations that led to the JCPOA, worked very hard on that. Um, In in January of 2016, we very optimistically thought that we were going to, you know, turn a page with Iran with the implementation of the nuclear deal, and that there would be more things that we could do in terms of people-to-people engagement, explaining Iran to an American audience. Uh, Of course, as we all know, uh, Trump got elected nine months later, and while we still work to the extent possible, on people-to-people engagement, um, trying to explain Iranian uh, history and culture to an American audience. A lot of what we've been doing, frankly, is is trying to preserve the bones of this agreement uh, in hopes that we can return to compliance on all sides.
0: So you supported the agreement?
2: Yes, I did. Uh, you know, with open eyes, there were uh, a lot of imperfections. Clearly, it didn't do everything that a lot of people hoped it would do. But I thought it was a great foundation for more U.S.-Iran diplomacy. And for me, as somebody who's followed Iran since the revolution, one of the most encouraging aspects of it was that it brought about this direct, high-level conversation between Americans and Iranians. I thought that was very important.
0: So, Barbara, let's dig into Iran. Maybe the place to start is with a couple of big-picture questions. The first one is your views on the overall dynamic in the relationship between Iran and the United States. And I should say that you wrote a book in 2007, it was 2007, I believe, mm-hmm. called Bitter Friends, Bosom Enemies, Iran, the U.S., and the Twisted Path to Confrontation. What was the theme of that book? And would you change anything about the theme if you wrote it today?
2: Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it was about this love-hate relationship between the United States and Iran that has gone on for for a long time. I mean, maybe even before the revolution, to some extent. I think you always have a a difficult relationship when you have a a regional power and you have a superpower. So I don't think it was ever easy, even under the Shah. But clearly, since the revolution, we've had no diplomatic relations. We had the hostage crisis. We have killed each other's personnel uh, in the Persian Gulf during the 1980s. Uh, Iran has supported groups like Hezbollah that have killed Americans in Beirut and in Iraq. Uh, and the United States has waged an economic war against Iran um, almost since uh, the beginning. Um, it's much worse now, frankly, than it has ever been in many ways. And I, I think I think the title of the, the, the book would still hold. What's really depressing, though, is that we are in some ways in a worse place now than we were when I wrote it because we've had the experiment of diplomacy with Iran leading to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the 2015 nuclear deal. And then we've had a president come in and, uh, and trash it for, in my view, uh, no good
0: reason. Barbara, how do you think they think of us both in a kind of a, a macro picture, stepping back over you know several decades, and then how do you think they think about us right now?
2: You know, I think Iranians have always had an admiration for the United States uh, because of the freedoms we enjoy, because of our economic success, because of our openness until relatively recently to immigrants from all over the world, including Iran. Uh, we have perhaps a million Iranian-Americans, uh, people who've come before the revolution and since. Um, But unfortunately, the positions taken by the Trump administration have begun to change that. While people still admire the United States and on an individual basis like Americans are very welcoming to Americans, they've been very, very upset by U.S. policy. I mean, it began with a travel ban. Trump had barely been in office a week when he decided to to make it almost impossible for people from Muslim countries to come to the United States. And that fell disproportionately on Iran, which I think had something like 30,000 visitors to the United mm. States uh, before Trump. People coming to see their families, coming to weddings, coming to, to meet new grandchildren. Coming to study. Coming to study. 12,000 Iranians studied in this country. I'm sure the number is much lower now. So that was the beginning of it. And then, of course, there was this constant uh, undermining of the Iran nuclear deal, which culminated in the U.S. withdrawal in 2018, and then in this year, the decision to try to prevent Iran from exporting any oil. Uh, So I think people have soured, certainly on Trump, uh, but perhaps to some extent on the United States. We're not considered reliable anymore. If one administration can break the promises of a previous one, then why should anyone trust anything
0: the United States agrees to? So, Barbara, the second kind of big question is, in your view, what does what does Iran want in the region and beyond?
2: You know, it's a hard question to answer because obviously different Iranians want different things. I would say the majority of the population wants to be respected, wants to be able to travel and trade uh, freely with neighbors, Uh, does not want to be seen as any kind of pariah state or uh, a meddler in regional affairs. But there are others who see uh, a kind of forward defense as necessary for Iran to protect it from its enemies. And that means uh, a lot of influence in neighboring countries uh, and countries that have large Shia populations. So Lebanon in Iraq, Syria, obviously, and to a much lesser extent Yemen. Uh, Afghanistan, Central Asia. Now, we should remember that this hegemonic impulse predates the Islamic Revolution. Uh, Iran was Persia. It was an empire for centuries. And so you can see... Um, the Shah wanted to do this. Well, uh, he, the Shah, of course, did. I mean, actually, the support for downtrodden Shia Muslims in Lebanon began very heavily under the Shah. But uh, if you look at the languages that are spoken and the religions in places like Tajikistan, Afghanistan, um, and so on, uh, the the influence of the old Persian Empire is still there. So those, uh, for example, the Saudis and others who say that Iran should, you know, stay out of Arab affairs, well, Iran was an empire. Uh, Iran has never been divorced from uh, its neighbors. And, of course, the Arabs invaded Iran and brought it Islam in the 7th century. So these are countries that have been interconnected, by religion, by trade, uh, by personal relationships uh, going back centuries.
0: And you mentioned some of the things that they do in pursuit of this objective, right? Support to terrorism, support to insurgents.
2: Well, again, we call them terrorists. They don't call them terrorists.
0: Right, right. exactly.
2: You know, th- this is our definition we're putting on it, just like, you know, we call it malign behavior and they call it their foreign policy. Right, right. <laughs> so, I mean, you know is a former CIA person that the essential thing is to be able to see the world through the eyes of your adversaries if you're going to be able to influence them.
0: So how do you think Tehran looks at the protest movements in Iraq and Lebanon?
2: I think they're looking at it with great trepidation. And of course, they have their own protest movement as well. Um, You know, these countries, by and large, people do not like Iran, uh, the influence that Iran has. In in those countries, Uh, Hezbollah, of course, this goes back almost 40 years. And Hezbollah, while it has defended Lebanon, has also brought upon Lebanon the wrath of the Israelis and and others. Uh, So uh, very ambivalent feelings, I think, uh, in Lebanon about Iran. Same thing we've seen in Iraq. Uh, These protests are being led by young people who don't remember uh, very clearly the U.S. invasion of their country, but they're very aware of the fact that Iran... It's very close to a number of paramilitary groups that uh, many of them uh, really act with impunity. They're they're essentially uh, mafia-type organizations that extort money from people. So uh, this is resented as well.
0: And then you've already raised it, but the third big question are the protests that we see inside Iran itself, Mm, right? Yeah. And these aren't the first ones. No. This happens occasionally. How should we think about those? Mm -hmm. How should the listeners think about those protests?
2: They're very serious. Uh, they're so serious that the Iranian government shut down the internet for five days uh, in an effort to prevent the videos of the crackdown from uh, coming outside the country and, and stirring up opinion, in an effort to prevent Iranians from talking to each other and organizing more protests. The government is is has been tolerated by Iranians, but has never been really popular. I think, uh, you know... What is it about, you know, all revolutions die as soon as they succeed? A lot of people had buyer's remorse from day one when they saw that they were getting a, an Islamic theocracy that was extremely repressive in place of the Shah's repressive regime. Uh, so I would say the the government has never been very popular. But what's different now, I think, is a lot of people have given up hope, uh, partly because of the U.S. sanctions, which have been so crippling, and partly because of the repressive forces in their own government, which they see as being strengthened uh, by U.S. sanctions, it's it's so unfortunate because really in 2015, uh, you know, there was this welling up of optimism that somehow life would be better. That you know, there were lots of Europeans, Americans coming to Iran, people talking about business deals. Boeing was going to sell them new airliners. Uh, well, maybe it's maybe a mixed blessing that they didn't get those. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Of course, they weren't the seven three seven Max. <laughs> they were other planes, I think. Um, but you know, there was a there was a feeling that finally, after forty years, they were they were going to head into a good patch, uh, and now all of that is gone. And yes, they blame the United States, but they they probably blame their own government more because, you know, uh, Iran has continued to carry out other policies which are clearly objectionable to uh, the Trump administration and, and many others and so has, has brought down the wrath of, of, uh, of the United States on them in the form of these sanctions.
0: Is there a risk to the regime
2: here in these protests or not? You know, I don't think there is at this moment because uh, the regime was very well prepared for these. We saw that with the internet disruptions. We saw that with a move to very, very heavy crackdown uh, immediately. There were other protests, economic protests, in late 2017, early 2018. About a half a dozen people died in those. In these, uh, there have been a number of arrests, probably thousands of arrests. So um, I think this was this was more serious. Now, we have to understand that the catalyst for it was a, a huge increase in the price of gasoline, uh, which was a tremendous shock to people who are already suffering from 40 percent inflation and and high unemployment and this this hopelessness as I mentioned I think a lot of people felt they had nothing left to lose and so they went out on the streets and they burned banks and gas stations and they were very violent which in turn caused the government to be uh, to be very violent in, in its response
0: so Barbara the Iranians have responded to the Trump administration's policy that you outlined earlier, with attacks on shipping in the Persian Gulf, the shoot-down of a U.S. military drone, and an attack on Saudi Arabia's most important oil facility, Abqaiq. What do you think the Iranians hope to gain from those kind of attacks?
2: Well, I think the Iranians showed uh, what they called strategic patience for a year after the U.S. withdrew, and it was only when uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, said that Iran could not export one drop of its oil. Uh, that we saw them shift from patience to resistance, they would call it. They say that if they can't export oil, then others should not be able to as well. And I think what they're trying to show uh, is, and I wrote a piece about this, that we we can't have our baklava and eat it too. Mm. If the U.S. is going to declare economic war on Iran, then U.S. allies in the region will bear the brunt. Iran is smart enough to know that they can't kill Americans and get away with it. Um, But they they tested. Uh, Donald Trump. They saw that he did not even retaliate for the shoot down of the drone. They've decided that he is a a Twitter tiger and that they can escalate without risking military action uh, against Iran. And that's exactly what they've done. Their goal is to force the United States to the negotiating table to Mm. offer sanctions relief uh, in return for new negotiations and to scare the Europeans into providing compensation to Iran uh, for the U.S. withdrawal from the deal when Iran was in full compliance with it. Um, it's it's risky, but uh, Iran, you know, has, uh, has iron nerves when it comes to this sort of thing. And the fact that the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA has strengthened uh, the more hardline elements in the country, the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, entities that are prepared to take these kinds of calculated risks. And we've also seen them escalate on the nuclear front. There has been a right. gradual a gradual uh, breach of limits set in the nuclear deal uh, in response to the U.S. withdrawal.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Barbara Slavin.
1: Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home? at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: So would you expect, Barbara, that they would continue these kind of attacks?
2: I think it's entirely likely. Um, you know, we had a flurry of diplomatic overtures around the time of the UN General Assembly. The French President Emmanuel Macron came up with an idea Uh, for a $15 billion credit to Iran, essentially a credit for future oil deliveries after sanctions are lifted, in return for new talks on aspects of the nuclear agreement that, frankly, are lacking. Uh, And President Trump seemed interested in this, but he would not announce any kind of sanctions easing prior to a meeting with Iran. And uh, the Iranian president, uh, Hassan Rouhani, has made it clear that he's not not Kim Jong-un. He doesn't give away photo ops for
0: free. Yeah. And it would be costly to him politically? Yeah, he, to... he would
2: gain nothing. I mean, he didn't even meet with President Obama when they reached a, a landmark agreement. So why would he, he meet with Donald Trump, who has done so much damage to the Iranian economy?
0: And how concerned are you, and maybe you're not, given that we're not willing to engage mm-hmm. militarily in response? How worried are you that these kind of resistance attacks could escalate into a larger military conflict?
2: I'm very worried because, you know, I think from an Iranian domestic political point of view, uh, a confrontation with the United States, I mean it's risky, but it might solidify public opinion uh, around the government if the United states was was seen as being in the wrong. Uh, and Iran is being careful, but you know, accidents happen. And if uh, an American had been at appca at that Saudi oil facility and had been killed, uh, or an American on one of those tankers, that would have made it difficult, more difficult, I think, for President Trump not to respond in some sort of way. I mean, so far, I think the, the reaction from the U.S., there's been some cyber uh, meddling. Probably uh, the U.S. was somehow involved in trying to encourage the protests in Iran. I'm sure that our intelligence agencies were involved in, in, in trying to fan the flames, which is probably one of the reasons why the government shut down the Internet. But, uh, you know, it's it's at this gray zone level and my hope is that somehow it stays there at least until our elections, because I think the Iranians, like people around the world, are waiting to see who will be the next yeah, president so of the
0: United States. So, what do you think Iran's strategy will be between now and November of 2020?
2: I think they will keep the pressure on, certainly through nuclear, uh, nuclear uh, steps. They have already started enriching uranium again at Fordo, which is an underground facility, very difficult to attack. I would expect more centrifuges to be installed. Perhaps the the level of uh, enriched uranium to creep closer and closer to weapons grade. They may begin to play some games with the inspectors. The uh, International Atomic Energy Agency right now has 24-7, you know, 365-day-a-year access to Iran's declared nuclear facilities. Perhaps that access will be impeded in some way. Uh, they will make sure that they stay on the agenda as hard as that is given everything else that's that's going on in the world and, of course, everything that's going on in the U.S. domestically.
0: If President Trump wins re-elections, do you think they'll be forced to come to the negotiating table given how damaging the economic sanctions have been?
2: I think there's some in Iran who would like to do a deal now because they sense that Trump is weak and that he's looking for some sort of uh, big win in terms of foreign policy. Um so, you know, if the sanctions continue, of course, the issue with sanctions is that the longer you try erode. to maintain yeah. maximum pressure, yeah. Yeah. the more they start to fall apart. Yeah. And this is particularly the case with sanctions that uh, are unilateral in nature, that are being shoved down the throat of Iran's trading partners. So I would expect uh, that, that they will erode further and that more and more countries will find mechanisms to circumvent them um, by trading in in local currencies, avoiding the dollar, avoiding the u s. financial system. And we're already seeing this with Russia to some extent, China, and even the Europeans have developed a a mechanism. It's not very robust yet. but if if Trump is reelected and tries to keep the same policy toward Iran, I would expect to see more trade with Iran from all sorts of
0: quarters. And what about a Democrat? If a Democrat wins, what do you think the Iranians would do?
2: Well, I think they're expecting that the U.S. would return to compliance to the JCPOA. I think they also understand that any U.S. president would probably want new negotiations because a lot of the limits in the deal expire uh, in in short order 2024, 2025, 2030. And there are other issues we have to talk
0: about. So, Barbara, let me ask you kind of a set of seemingly random questions talked earlier about the street level protests in Iran and what those mean what about elite politics in Iran how would you describe it is there is there a struggle among the elites for the future of the country how do you think about that
2: yeah you know Iran has always been very fractious it's 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 not a totalitarian state it has politics within set guidelines um, so it has always had more conservative and more liberal elements within the elite, the so-called insiders of the regime, who are maybe a couple of thousand people, basically we're talking about, who you know, made the revolution and fought the war against Iraq in, in the 1980s and uh, now are in, in positions of authority in a number of institutions around the country. Um, Rouhani, President Rouhani, and those around him, Uh, I think saw the nuclear deal as a way to sort of push for a more uh, liberal Iran, one that was more engaged with the West. Now, I'm afraid we're seeing those who think that Iran's future lies more with China and Russia uh, coming to the fore. And these are people who you know, want to keep a very tight ship domestically, don't want to see more liberalization, although I should say that Iranian society has changed beyond all recognition since the revolution, and it's one of the more secular places in the Middle East, if you would believe it. But they they want to keep a lid on it if they can, and they want to, to do their deals with uh, with uh, Russia, China, and and such countries. I think what's happened because of the U.S. withdrawal... Because of the protests that we've seen, is that actually there's been a coalescing of the elite behind a rather tough policy? This uh, policy of resistance has been um, confirmed, uh, has been supported by the almost the entire political spectrum in Iran. They feel that it is that it is the appropriate response to to U.S. actions, and Iran is going to have elections, uh, parliamentary in 2020 and presidential in 2021, and while unpredictable. I mean, there could be somebody who could come to the fore who could catch the imagination of Iranians. Probably it will be somebody from the more conservative, more hardline camp um, that will win presidential and will and will also dominate in terms of the, the parliamentary elections. So I think we're in for a tough period. One thing that could affect that, of course, is our elections. If we uh, elect somebody who wants to engage with Iran, you know, that could have an impact on who becomes Iran's president in 2021.
0: So, Barbara, is it fair to say from an Iranian domestic political position, I'm kind of putting together here different pieces of what you said, is it fair to say that the nuclear deal gave some weight to the moderates, I don't Mm -hmm. know what you want to call them, Mm -hmm. moderates? Pragmatists. I call them pragmatists. Pragmatists Mm -hmm. who wanted a more liberal Iran who wanted an Iran that had better relations with its neighbors and that the withdrawal from the nuclear agreement snapped that back and even in a more hard way, back mm-hmm. to the hardliners. Is that fair?
2: Um, partly. I-, I would say that the-, the people who've been set back are people who wanted to put their faith in the West. Um, actually, one one function of the U.S. withdrawal is that Iran has been forced to rely on its immediate neighbors. To survive, so Iraq, Afghanistan, Central Asia. Uh, it, you know, Iranians would prefer to trade with Europe. They'd prefer to trade with the United States. So, you know, these are these are fallback positions. This is plan plan B. But yeah, no, definitely um, it's as I say, I mean, there's nothing worse than dashed expectations. And during all the time I've been writing about Iran, covering Iran, it was always so controversial the idea of dealing with the United States, with the great Satan, as as the hardliners call the US. And then they finally did it, and they got this agreement. And now it's 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 being destroyed. So those who said don't trust the West, you can never trust the West, particularly the United States, you know, they're they're being vindicated, and and that's a terrible message, I think, to give a country like this. Remember, eighty million people in in the center of Southwest Asia, Middle East, with oil, uh, with natural gas, and even more importantly, with a very well educated population that was predisposed to like the West. That's, after all, where most of the Iranian diaspora is. So, this is a big setback and it's going to take us a long time to recover.
0: So, let me say something and get your reaction to it. So, I'm struck, at least it seems to me, that the hardliners are generationally challenged. That you have the original Iranian revolution generation of hardliners, you have the Iran Iraq War generation of hardliners, and there's not much after that. So first question, is that your sense, number one? And then number two, to what extent are we risking creating another Mm. generation of hardliners?
2: Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. Uh, uh, Young people, you know, do still look to the West. I mean, this is a society that has something like 85% internet penetration, almost 70% on social media, particularly Instagram, which is hugely popular. Um you know, very focused on on western fashion western ideas, so I think there is still hope with this with this generation um But if the United States and Iran were to go to war if if this economic siege were to continue, you know that could have an effect and and there are young hardliners too you know who uh use very savvy techniques, they have their own movies uh there's a woman named Narjas Bogojli at Johns Hopkins Ice who's written an excellent book about, about this young generation and their media products. So, I mean, the state supports uh, 10 million people, Basiji, these are, these are young activists on college campuses everywhere you look, the Revolutionary Guards, all the institutions associated with the supreme leader of the country uh, and religious institutions. And no, they're not a majority, but they're they're not insignificant. So, yeah, I think there is a danger. And that's why we need... The next president has to end the travel ban, first and foremost. Get back into the deal, the nuclear deal. Resume negotiations with Iran. Uh, expand our contacts, not, not constrict them. Because otherwise, I mean, we'll have a Cuba or a North Korea situation, mm-hmm. which won't be in our interest.
0: What would you advise... Let's assume a Democrat wins and the president asked to sit down with you, and you gave him those mm-hmm. points. Mm-hmm. And what if the president asked you, how should we handle their activities in the region?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What should our policy be towards theirs, those activities?
2: Yeah, I, you know, we sanction everything now. That's, that's the, the all-purpose answer. No, I think the United States has to engage with other countries in the region. These are Arab states, and, you know, particularly Iraq, uh, Iraqis would rather have better relations with Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, other countries where people speak Arabic, uh, even if many many are are Shia Muslim. We should encourage the uh, Arab countries to get more involved and more, be more supportive of of these countries and uh, compete with Iran to the extent we can. You know, invest to the extent we can, engage to the extent we can. Um, But we're not going to beat them at their own game. They've been doing this for centuries. And and sanctions alone and propaganda of the ham-handed sort that we're seeing come out of the State Department,
0: that's not going to do the trick. So Barbara, let's finish up by having me ask you about Iran's relationships with three countries. We've mentioned two of them already. So the first is Russia. How would you describe their relationship with Russia?
2: Well, you know, Russia uh, took away from the Persian Empire large chunks in the uh, 18th, 19th uh, centuries, actually invaded Iran in, in uh, after World War II and, and took a chunk of Iran. At that time, the United States helped Iran get it back. So it is not a, a relationship of great love, but strategically their interests have coincided, and uh, together they saved the Assad regime in Syria, and uh, Iran is using Russia more and more for its banking channels. The Russians are also under sanction. I think we're in danger of creating a coalition of the sanctioned. Frankly, there are uh, there are dealings that involve repression. Uh, the uh, the old KGB and now the FSB uh, have passed on to uh, Iran uh, a lot of its techniques for repressing dissent, very brutally. So they are getting closer. At that level
0: but how do you think the Iranians think about growing Russian influence in the region
2: I think that they're they're okay with it now because it it, it generally supports their goals uh, I mean the Iranians don't really care about Libya for example where the Russians apparently are involved now as well um, but in Syria certainly they've worked together the only caveat would be that of course the Israelis deal with uh, Russia in Syria mm-hmm. and get uh, Russia's approval. Uh, for many of the airstrikes that they've carried out, which have killed a lot of Iranians and destroyed a lot it's of a Iranian in- infrastructure. Routine, yeah. So, that you know, it's, 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 it's their interests are not identical, um, but they have coincided. And because Iran is in the position it's in because of U.S. sanctions, I mean, there are not very many big powers it can turn to. Mm. Uh, if it wants to buy weapons, not many other places it can go. And, of course, uh, Russia has invested heavily in Iran's nuclear infrastructure.
0: Yeah. How about China?
2: china has become or had become iran's largest trading partner during the last bout of sanctions which occurred under the obama administration it replaced the european union um there are still very strong economic ties again this is not because iran loves chinese products and services it's because it can't get the european products and services that it would rather have so you know the chinese have cut back a fair amount uh on trade with iran because of sanctions But they have continued to buy oil to some extent. They're continuing some of their investments in Iran. So I think this is an important relationship, and this is one that will continue and probably grow. How about Turkey? Turkey uh, is also interesting. Uh, Again, there are disagreements, you know, over Syria, for example. But Turkey has been a lifeline for Iran. Uh, A lot of financial transactions go through Turkey. Turkey still buys Iranian natural gas and has a waiver, I believe, to do so because they need it for electricity. Um, and, you know, these are the two great old empires, the Ottoman mm-hmm. Empire the Persian Empire. They've been rivals, but um, there's a, a, a stronger and warmer relationship between uh, Persians and Turks than there is between Persians and Arabs, mm-hmm. interestingly enough. Uh, Iranians go to Istanbul for vacation, or at least they used to when they could afford it. So I think that relationship will remain important. And we've seen that Erdogan thumbs his nose at the United States, frankly, and uh, does what he pleases. So I'm sure he's going to maintain a strong relationship with Iran.
0: Barbara, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for asking.
0: That was Barbara Slavin. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another
1: episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio.